From beach towels to tea towels and from mugs to water bottles, the TNT Shop has it all. Browse our shop now at tntradio.live. You're with James Freeman and the Freeman Report on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Hello and welcome to the Freeman Report, which puts the world's leading scientists, doctors, politicians and expert commentators right at the heart of today's news talk and our fight for freedom, liberty and justice. It is Tuesday the 13th of February 2024. I'm your host James Freeman and on today's Freeman Report we're going to travel to a country that Western leaders talk about a lot and yet most in the West know virtually nothing about Nothing about its people, how they live, their lives, um, what their hopes and fears are, and what they think of the West. Lots in the West think they know about this country, but that the reality is that most of this is bedded in the modern foundation laid down by President George W. Bush in his 2002 State of the Union speech, in which he said, states like these and their terrorist allies constitute an axis of evil, arming to threaten the peace of the world. President Bush was, of course, talking about North Korea, Iran and Iraq. Now, in the case of Iraq, the Bush administration misled the American public into believing that Iraq was connected to 9-11 and that the country was concealing weapons of mass destruction, a.k.a. WMDs. Now, the British people knew that Iraq had nothing to do with 9-11, so Prime Minister Blair focused solely on the threat from WMDs, telling the British public that Saddam could launch missiles that would reach the UK in 45 minutes. Both leaders lied to the public in order to lay the foundations for an attack on Iraq and a prolonged war in the Middle East. And we all know the consequences of that, don't we? over a million dead and no WMDs, and of course Iraq had nothing to do with 9-11. The model that America has created to rule the world over the past 50 years using its superpower status handed to it on the back of its world reserve currency has been based upon lies time and time again. Lies about what America stands for around the world and the intentions of other countries around the globe. This American model of doing things has invented bogeymen around the world so that the US can extend its military reach in faraway places. The lessons learned from the war in Iraq should be at the forefront of Western minds today, but sadly, too many have either forgotten or are too gullible to recognise the lies that they're being told. But to be fair, the US propaganda machine is all-powerful. But regardless, you'd have thought more would see through the lies, but sadly, they don't. Now, in terms of the so-called axis of evil, America invaded Iraq and reconstructed the country. And while North Korea poses a threat, provided the US doesn't go to war with Russia and China, it is my view that the North Korean leader will be kept in check by those countries, Russia and China. So, 
The only country left in that so-called axis of evil is Iran. And it is clear that Iran is in the sights of the US. It has been since 9-11. Many even claim that the whole adventure in the Middle East after 9-11 was always about a plan to go after the Iranian regime. People in the West are constantly told that Iran is evil, that it is hell-bent on getting nuclear weapons, which might be true. I mean, if you're being threatened by America and you want to keep your independence, then maybe that is the only option to ensure that the US doesn't attack you. But what do we really know about Iran? John F. Kennedy thought he knew how to reverse the march to war with Russia during the Cold War, which is almost certainly the reason for his assassination in November 1963. Earlier that year, on the 10th of June 1963, just one year after the Cuban Missile Crisis, President John F. Kennedy gave his historic speech, his peace speech, at American University in Washington, D.C., in that speech, Kennedy spoke in terms of understanding the Russian people as having the same aspirations as Americans, even if they thought communism was bad. Kennedy said, No government or social system is so evil that its people must be considered as lacking in virtue. As Americans, we find communism profoundly repugnant as a negation of personal freedom and dignity. But we can still hail the Russian people for their many achievements in science and space, in economic and industrial growth, in culture and in acts of courage. Among the many traits the peoples of our two countries have in common, none is stronger than our mutual abhorrence of war. Now, the same can be said of Iran. So what do we know about the Iranian people? Very little, it seems, as most in the West only hear about the regime's support of terrorism in the region. Is it a coincidence that this is the only thing we ever hear about the country? I think not. And so I'd like to kick off what I hope will be a series of reports on Iran and its people. Today's Freeman Report will look at the freedom fighters in the country who are just like us. They're fighting for the same freedoms that we in the West are now starting to lose. My guest today is Iranian-born author Arash Azaz Azizi, um, who now lives in the US. And he's just published a new book called What Iranians Want, Women, Life, Freedom which documents the aspirations of those who want freedom in the country. Now, Iran is part of the BRICS nations aligned with China, and I think it is incredibly important that we learn more about the country beyond what American leaders want us to think. So stay tuned for all of that in just a moment. Now, before we go over to Gemma Cooper for today's breaking news, I just want to remind you that um, Julian Assange's two-day public hearing will take place on the 20th and the 21st of February at the High Court in the UK, which will determine whether Julian will have permission to appeal or whether he'll be extradited to the US. 
TNT will be at the Royal Courts of Justice broadcasting and covering the entire two days of proceedings and will be broadcasting from various locations across London. There's also, um, you should be aware, there's a London premiere of The Trust Fall, Julian Assange, um, which is a fantastic film that's premiering on the Sunday, the 18th of February at 1pm at Rio Cinemas in London. The film will be followed by a panel discussion and Q&A with Tariq Ali and Kristin um, Hafson. Um, and hopefully, hopefully, fingers crossed, Stella Assange. To find out more about the film, please Google the trustful Julian Assange London premiere. As always, if you want to get in touch about anything discussed on the show, or maybe you want to suggest a guest, then email me at jamesfreeman at tntradio.live. And if you want to join in the conversation, please do head over to tntradio.live and click on the chat icon. My name is James Freeman, and this is the Freeman Report for today's news talk, TNT. Getting straight to the facts. Enough with the lies. We need facts. This is today's news talk radio, TNT. Hello, Gemma. How are you doing? Yes, very well. Very great show you've got coming up, you know, looking at Iran and the people there, because it's the same in every country, isn't it? Because the people generally are the people with the same hopes, dreams, aspirations uh, and wants and needs as other people in other countries around the world. It's, it's the ones in power that are the problem. So, yeah, very, very interesting to hear the parallels of, the, you know, the Iranian people's fight for their freedoms. And we're, we're now on the back foot trying to fight for ours, which are being removed on a daily basis. So it'll be a fascinating East meets West, you know, Middle East meets West kind of show there. Very, very much looking forward to it. Yeah, you know, and 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 even though the people in other countries around the world, their view of America is um, very different to most in the West, because all they see is America going around the world, bombing countries, attacking countries, making up lies to set the groundwork to do that. Um, and yet, you know, in, here in the West, most people just think Iran, the people there, um, you know, they they all support terrorism. That's the kind of impression that we're given. Um, and the interesting thing is we're never, ever told about what it's actually like in the country, what it's like to live there, um, you know, what the people are like. And I think this is really important, as Kennedy realised, you know, if we're going to avoid these stupid wars that our leaders take us into, then we need to make connections with the people in those countries, because... More than not, those people are exactly the same as us. They want the same things and they want to be free and they do not want war. Absolutely. Well said. Well said. It's going to shape up to be a great show and it's only Tuesday. There we go. <laughs> it is only Tuesday and I have got a great um, packed week um, tomorrow, actually. Um, this is aligned with the story I think you're going to talk about now, Gemma. Um, tomorrow we've got um, Francesca Donato, um, MEP, who's going to appear on the Freeman Report. Um, she's been on before, but this time she's going to be talking about farming, um, about the Italian farmers now protesting in Rome. And she was actually outside the the, um, EU Parliament in Brussels when the farmers were spreading muck all over the Parliament. Um, so really looking forward to that show tomorrow. And of course, I think that's the story you're going to talk about now, Gemma. 
Well, it's the, uh, I mean, the, the farming story, um, it, it really isn't going anywhere. And the new line today in the UK is how it's affecting um, uh, people who farm sheep and then sell the wool, uh, which used to be a very profitable um, uh, revenue service, revenue stream for farmers. Um, and that's that, that's gone, it seems, as the, the war on farming continues on every level. Um, so farmers are now in protest in the UK, taking to burning their fleeces from their sheep um, because the returns they're getting from the um, British Wool Marketing Board, as it was formerly known, it's now known as British Wool. There used to be a thing called the the sheep check, uh, the wool check rather that you would get from the from British Wool, and it was so lucrative for farmers. It was often enough to cover the rent of a farm for an entire year. Now the returns are so paltry. You know, you're talking thirty quid one farmer, thirty pounds one farmer was quoted for for the, a huge amount of wool. Uh, they're saying it's just not worth it. It's not worth shearing. You shear the sheep anyway because you have to in in certain weathers they get too hot. Um, so you shear the sheep, but the cost of co collecting the wool, transporting the wool, sending it off is so prohibitive compared to the returns that they're getting that they're now just burning it. Um, so it seems that the war on farming is is coming from every angle. Now they're blaming um, the the rise in synthetic wool, which apparently has increased over the last few years, apart, apart from the fact that British wool is seen as a luxury brand, actually, but they're saying synthetic products have taken over. They're also saying um, that uh, the COVID, and I don't know, how, there's not produced any anecdotal evidence as to how COVID and the scamdemic have uh, have affected the price of wool that they're, that they're now getting from the British Wool Board, um, but they're saying it's basically just not worth it. Now, uh, one farmer is quoted as saying he's got 260 sheep uh, in, in the North Midlands, and, and he says that it's just not viable, even with 260 fleeces, a huge amount of wool, he said it's just it's just really not, not possible, and he has started burning the wool, and he's urging other farmers to do the same. Um, and he's not the only one. The National Sheep Association says that burning wool poses a huge risk to the industry because if everybody does it, then British wool, which is a luxury brand, is a thing of the past and it just won't exist anymore. British wool, they are engaging in the debate, actually. They're saying we, we understand that... Um, well, this is one more in a series of pressures facing UK farmers, but they're not actually saying how much they're going to increase the price at which they'll buy the fleeces. Um, whereas before it was, I say, very, very lucrative. Now they're getting hardly anything for it. And of course, this is a protest now on top of the protest we saw in Wales last week. We saw the protests in Dover uh, on Friday evening as the tractors lined up to, to protest against cheap imports. Um, maybe wool is included in those cheap imports. Who knows? But uh, certainly this is another angle at which British farmers are being totally hammered. They're not getting any return, not making any money, and they're now protesting here too. Yeah, it's curious, isn't it? If, if it really is, um, uh, uh, you know, a quality brand, British wool, why are they not being paid the prices for it? You know, when we think of um, quality products like cashmere and, and the such, consumers will pay a lot of money for these um premium products um you know if you want a cashmere scarf and you want anything decent you're talking about a few hundred pounds um do you know why there is this price pressure because obviously if we look at milk for example it's because the supermarkets are squeezing the price they're using it as a loss leader instead of paying proper prices do we know why the the wool is is somebody in the in the, in the chain making a lot of money that they're not passing it on or, or what what's the story there Gemma? 
Well, British Wool, um, formerly, as I say, the British Wool Marketing Board, is, is not saying why it's paying such low yields for something which it used to pay very high yields for. Um, and it's, it's, it does affect a lot of farmers. In, in the UK, there are 35,000 members of the British Wool um, con conglomerate, if you want to call it that, of farmers who produce uh, fleeces and sell them to the British Wool um, organisation. Uh, you know, are they trying to buy cheap um, so they can send it abroad and make more money as, as British, you know, a lot of wool products, you know, like you see in um, the Edinburgh Woolen Mill, for example, uh, you look at the label and you think, oh, that's a lovely British brand. It's all made in China. So are they shipping it out to places where it's very cheap to produce and then selling, you know, getting a return that way? I don't know. All British wool are saying is they're now engaging in the debate and they are talking to the wool, the wool farmers uh, about the prices, but they're not saying why they've dropped the revenue. They're not saying why. The farmers are yeah. saying it's because synth synthetic wool. Uh, I don't know. It's clearly something is something is afoot here because it used to be a very good source of income for a lot of farmers here in the UK. I mean, it could just be market forces. Um, but what I think I'm going to do later today is I'm going to write to the Wool Board, um, the British Wool Board, um, if that's what they're called, and then I'm going to try and get them on the show here to tell their side of the story here because it'd be interesting to hear because, you know, unlike milk, there are, well, I guess you've got milk has got competing products these days um, with all these um, different types of nut milks and whatever. But I do wonder if that is what's going on in the wool market here or if farmers are being squeezed and there's something that actually can be done about it. So I will contact them later today and see if I can get them on the programme. Um, but Gemma, as I just said, you know, we're going to be talking about farming lots on TNT, it seems. Um, Francesca Donato, um, MEP, will be on tomorrow to talk about the protests in Italy. And I'm sure this story is not going to be going away anytime soon. So thank you for that story, um, Gemma Cooper. Right, to the rest of you, um, do you think you know what Iran's like, what its people, how they live, um, their aspirations? Uh, not many of us actually do. I, I prefer to put my hand up and say I know virtually nothing about Iran apart from what I hear through the telly box, which is all pretty negative stuff. Um, so... If you're interested in that, stay tuned because we're going to be talking to author Arash Azizi um, straight after this break. So don't go anywhere. Stick with us here on TNT. TNT's Jeremy Nell. Nice comment here from Rebecca. She says the youngest people um, I work with are a bit more mature, but their interactions with the public is stifled. And she's referring to the excessive use of cell phones and social media and how it's making them so antisocial also. The business is open six days a week. One of his staff members formally requested that they shouldn't, you know, that they could they be given permission not to have to work on Wednesdays so that they could help at the dog shelter. Now, as you know, I'm a dog lover. I have hunting dogs. I've got dogs coming out of my ears, my Malinois. And this dog, this Malinois, is bright even by Malinois standards. She can do crossword puzzles. Is lying under my desk at the moment, feeling sorry for herself because she's just come on heat for the first time and she's completely bewildered. She doesn't know why she's bleeding to death. It's not about whether it's a good or a bad thing to work at animal shelters. That's a delightful thing. It's a noble thing to do. But who in their right mind goes to their boss and says, would you mind? I'd rather not work on Wednesdays if it's okay because I've got other priorities in a, in a town down the road. Jeremy Nell on today's News Talk TNT.
next steps to space. This time we go back to the moon to learn to live, to work, to invent, to create. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Right. Well, as I said before the break, I know virtually nothing about Iran. Um, I've seen a couple of documentaries over the years, but um, most of what I know actually comes from news um, platforms in the West, which we know um, spout lots of propaganda. So I'm absolutely delighted that author Arash um, Azizi um, is joining me now. Um, Hello, Arash. How are you doing? How are you doing? It's great to be with you. Yeah, thank you for coming on the the Freeman Report. I think it's really, really important, I think, to talk about Iran at the moment, because I think it's clear that um, the US for many years now has had its sights, um, its target sights on Iran. And, you know, people in the West are told that it is the axis of evil. Of course, George W. Bush um, first came out with that um, back in, well, it was nearly 20, well, more than 20 years ago now. So I think people's perception in the West of Iran is pretty distorted. So really, really important that we talk about it. Now, um, Arash, I wonder if you wouldn't mind starting by just introducing yourself, telling us a bit, a little bit about back, your background, um, your links with Iran, and you've also done some work as a broadcaster, haven't you? I think you actually hosted an Iranian um, news programme. You've also been on the BBC. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, definitely. My name is Arash, and uh, now I live in the United States, but I'm originally from Iran, born and bred in Iran. I sort of left Iran when I was about 20 years old. Um, And I was like many Iranians of my generation. um, I was confronted with this Islamic Republic, this sort of dictatorship that we all grew up under, and I was amongst the sort of, you know, many activists who tried to confront this regime on on a variety of uh, sort of variety of grounds. Um, and uh, also, I was a journalist in Iran. And after I left Iran, um, you know, it became very difficult to go back because of the repression uh, against journalists and activists. So I've sort of lived in uh, other countries, um, Canada, where I also have a citizenship and um, uh, and now United States. Um, and, and yeah, as you mentioned, like many Iranian journalists um, out of good city of London, there are many channels who are broadcasting in Persian to Iran. So I, I hosted a news show um, you know, a few years ago, and I was sort of a correspondent for that. Um, and you sort of continue to do journalism, broadcasting to Iran, and as many others do as well. Um, before I sort of I left journalism for academia, and uh, sort of I teach in a university in the United States now. But yeah, that's my story. Fantastic. And um, how old were you when, or, or maybe a better question to ask actually, was um, how long ago did you leave um, Iran for the US? Yeah, so it was 2008 when I, well, uh, 2008 I left Iran and I sort of went to a couple of different countries before I ended up in the US. But yeah, it was 2008. Um, and, you know, in 2009, there was this grand movement uh, that began that really changed things and made the return very difficult. So, yeah. Yeah. And um, just describe what, first of all, what it was like growing up in Iran as a young person. Were you even aware that there were countries around the world that had more freedoms? Um, And also, what was it like over the period when America was talking about Iran um, uh, as an axis of evil? Were, Were Iranians even aware that that was going on? Yeah, that's a very good question. You know, I have to say that, um, you know, the repression of the sort of Islamic Republic, um, you know, is one thing. Uh, but I really love my country. And, I, you know, I loved growing up in Iran. I had a, a tremendous time. I'll, there are many things about um, Iran of my um, teenagers that I 
sort of miss. Um, you know, I always say, for example, that uh, Iran is a very cultured place. I remember like with our people my age, you know, in teenagers and sort of early young years, you know, we were into so much theater and literature and cinema and, you know, of a level that I've never really seen anywhere else, frankly. Um, and, um, yeah, so we had a lot of, uh, you know, like, like any other, it's, it's important to remember that, that, you know, Iranians and like everybody else are, you know, have their sort of normal lives um, despite being restricted by regime so much. As for the um, George W. Bush and Axis of Evil, well, you know, 9-11, which I remember, you know, watching 9-11, um, I was a kid, I remember being shocked at it like anybody else around the world, you know, in Tehran. Initially, frankly, some Iranians were jokingly saying that, wow, maybe U.S. will not bring freedom to Afghanistan and Iraq. And, you know, there's a lot of Afghan and Iraqi refugees in Iran. The joke was that, oh, no, maybe we will have to go and sort of line up behind the Afghan embassy to go there. But it, it very quickly became clear that, of course, this wasn't what we had, that the new age of war and mayhem in our region had started um, that clearly wasn't benefiting anyone. Um, and yes, I do remember Acts of Evil uh, speech in 2002. I've written about it later um, and as to what it represented because it actually came at a moment. Um, so if you talk about it, not as how I remember it as a, as a teenager, which wasn't much, but uh, later, this came at a moment where the Islamic Republic and the United States were actually collaborating very closely with each other um, against the Taliban, um, right? They were working with each other against the Taliban in Afghanistan, um, and this was a really moment of opportunity in some ways because the Islamic Republic was had a leadership at the time. Uh, well, obviously, the ultimate leadership was with the same man, Supreme Leader Khamenei, who, you know, who I have nothing positive to say about and, and who uh, definitely uh, was has sacrificed our country on the altar of his anti-Americanism and all that. But at the same time, there was a president, Khatami, who had been elected by Iranians. I remember being enthusiastic about him as a teenager myself. And he was a reformist and he definitely did want different relationships with the United States. So there were very serious forces in Iran that did want to reset a relationship with the United States and did want to have a better relationship with the West and the world. And unfortunately, that opportunity was lost um, in that moment by, um, you know, by amongst other things that uh, infamous speech. Yeah, and of course, in the run-up to that famous speech by Bush, I mean, Iran had um, for years been at war, quite a nasty war, wasn't it, with Iraq. Um, do you think the people in Iran were pretty war-weary by that point? Because this 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 went on for a long time, didn't it? That's right. The war went from 1980 to 1988, and definitely we were very war very as you say and the 80s were a terrible time in iran um because the, mm. the, the republic was founded in 79 it, it had a sort of a terribly repressive streak in its first decade especially it executed uh, thousands of people and we had a terrible war with iraq you know um most iranians including me you know i lost a cousin in the war even though i was born sort of toward the very end of it um, most iranians have know someone that they've lost in that war um it was very traumatic because, you know, we, uh, Saddam Hussein, this Iraqi dictator, invaded our country and it took years to drive him back out. Um, and then, you know, the war unfortunately continued for no good reason uh, for years after the Islamic Republic sort of continued it. So it was really a time of, 90s were a time of reconstruction in Iran and late 90s were a time where serious parts of the establishment backed by millions of Iranians, young people and, and, and women specifically, wanted change. And, and I remember this time as a tremendously hopeful time. And we were really, 
what makes conditions of Iran so depressing today um, is those of us who remember, have a history of remember really in the early 2000s, we thought Iran would be a very different place within a matter of years. Um, if you ask anyone that the same man Khamenei and the same regime Islamic Republic would be in power in 2024, uh, even the most pessimistic people would probably, you know, not uh, believe that. So Iran, a country of culture, um, and certainly there's a struggle going on at the moment, isn't there? Which is why I think you've decided to write a new book um, called What Iranians Want, Women, Life and Freedom. So, um, Arash, we're going to go to the break now, but when we come back, I'd like to talk about that book. Um, I guess my first question to you is going to be, why did you decide to write it now and what do you hope for the book? Because clearly, um, I think it's about um, telling the story um, of normal Iranian life um, in the country and their struggles to get the freedoms that actually, you know, that we've got in the West that we're actually fighting for now and are being eroded. So, um, So don't go anywhere. Stick with me, James Freeman on TNT. This is today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Here is the news. Matt Boyland here with a look at your TNT headlines. Australia has sounded the alarm over Israel's planned ground offensive in the southern Gaza city of Rafah. The White House is once again being called out for its hypocrisy after President Joe Biden joined TikTok, despite previously banning the Chinese-owned app on government devices, declaring it a national security risk. And over a dozen people have been injured in a massive explosion that ripped through an amusement park in Sweden. Globalist agendas, democratic rights at risk, corruption, propaganda. It never stops. For the news and views silenced by the mainstream media, by government and corporations, vote one. TNT Radio. Free speech always has a home here. Stay up to date with the latest live news and current affairs delivered by our lineup of expert commentators and hosts. Listen to TNT Radio anywhere you go. Ask Alexa or Google to play TNT Radio or download the TNT Radio app for free from the App Store or Google Play. Today's news talk. This is TNT Radio. Right. So, Arash, as I said before the break, obviously you've written this new book. Um, tell us when you decided to start writing the book and what motivated you? What What are your hopes for the book? You know, in 2022, uh, a simple event led to a massive uprising in Iran. That was the killing of Mahsa Amini, a young woman in Tehran who had been arrested like Thousands of Iranian women are all the time just because she wasn't uh, covering her uh, her hair properly. Something that is just chilling just to think about it, that you can be arrested because you're wearing the, you know, you're not covering your hair the way the government wants to. Um, and she was arrested and she was killed in custody. And this led to a national uprising. Uh, tens of thousands of Iranian women came out and they stopped wearing the compulsory veiling. In fact, as I speak to you now, uh, millions or hundreds of thousands continue to disobey this rule of compulsory wearing at you know very high cost um, to themselves. Often, they came out, they burnt their hijabs, they um, they really started this mass movement. Um, and in you know which went on for for a long time, um, you know, and a lot of us had a lot of hopes for it. Of course, you know, it was uh, we had a lot of problems with lacking the political leadership um, and ultimately the regime. Uh, you know, not being able to overcome the regime. But I wanted to write the book. I started sort of in early 2023, very early weeks of 2023, as the movement had been going on for a few months. It was clear that it was still there. But what really mattered for me was that I thought, as the West is covering, the, the news of the uprising was everywhere on the on the Western media. But I thought what they're missing in this simple story of, um, you know, 
people against the government they hate was how rich and diverse were the scenes of Iranian sort of civil society, of Iranian different movements, um, of what is it that they were fighting for? Why is it that my compatriots um, were um, killing, uh, were sorry, um, uh, having themselves killed, um, losing their lives? Um, uh, for, by coming out to the street and 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 what else had they done because it did 2022 2023 wasn't the first time that they had done this in fact it was you know they've done it almost continuously uh, for the last you know couple of decades so from the of earlier conversation that i spoke about president khatami in the late 19 uh, late 1990s you know all those hopes were dashed but the process of them being dashed was um you know the iranian people never stopped coming out um, and I wanted to talk about that, um, and I wanted to uh, really give voice to this uh, array of Iranians um, coming out and, and write write a book that would uh, really be something of a manifesto for this movement, um, which became known as the subtitle of the book says by its slogan, Woman, Life, Freedom. So that's how I wrote it. Well, I'm really happy that you have. Um, I, um, I've got a copy of the book here for anybody who's interested. There you go. Um, and I've started to, to read it, and there's some really interesting stories um, in there, Arash. Tell us about the, um, you were just talking there about this compulsory, compulsory law to wear the hijab. Um, now, people listening to this probably think that it's quite clear you either wear a hijab or you don't. But it's not as clear as that, is it? Um, and I think the story that you tell in the book, um, actually, it can be you're not wearing it right, or you haven't got it on right, or you haven't got your hair hidden enough. Tell us about the law um, and about um, the kind of things that people are arrested for um, and what happens to them if they're not wearing it properly. Yeah, that's a, that's a, a great way to uh, sort of start this conversation. You know, it, traditionally, um, uh, Iranians, um, you know, most Iranians are Muslims, um, uh, including sort of my family. Um, and, you know, traditionally, uh, Iranian Muslims, like like people of any religion, you know, they um, they choose sort of um, what degrees their religiosity. That's a beautiful sort of reality of life, right? Um, sometimes you go Sundays to church, sometimes you don't. You know, some people go, some people don't go, some people go in a period. So it, traditionally, Islam in in Muslim lands, including Iran, um, has been the same. Um, you know, so. It's the same with this rule of hijab and covering your hair. So some people cover it uh, fully. Some people would wear a really colorful scarf. Some people, you know, and before the revolution in 1979, Iranians of all walks of life uh, lived with each other. Many women didn't wear the hijab at all. Some women wore it very strictly. Um, some women wore bikinis to the beach. And some women wore, you know, you could only see their face. Um, and it, it was fine. It wasn't a cause of really social tension. Unfortunately, after the revolution, this pirat puritanical Islamist sort of ideological government starts imposing and the hijab um, and imposing the hijab by having armed men um, all over the city. Um, to, the first thing that they do is that they pull out women out of um you know, woman who had worked in, let's say, the, um, you know, banks, uh, in the air, uh, airways, uh, you know, they, they sort of pull them out, they force them to wear the hijab. So as a result, yes, today, um, so hijab is the most Islamic proper way is that you're supposed to cover every single hair that you have and also your uh, arms up to here, basically. So you might be a person who has covered their hair, um, but the, your scarf comes out here. Or you're, you know, you're showing this much of a hand, 
or, you know, the other, and, you know, this is sort of the sick man, if I may say, who enforces, of course, you know, um, get worked up about things that are just normal. For example, um, leggings, you know, there was a period in Iran where one would wear leggings that, of course, covers everything, but it was considered too tight. And this was a debate between the sort of the Islamist politicians in Iran who went on and on about leggings, uh, uh, you know, in a way that is farcical in a country that has very serious problems. So this obsession with woman bodies, which is well known and sort of in patriarchal cultures, um, yeah, is enforced by these politicians. Yeah. And just um, as you were talking about all that, I'm just wondering how much is this is a kind of a religious argument versus a male-female argument. Um, obviously, there's lots of m m millions of women now who are pushing back against this. And I'm sure lots more actually feel that it is unjust, the, the, this law and the way that it's enforced. How many men across the country um, actually um, are against it and are supporting the women? Many men. It's it's many men are. I, I think the majority of Iranians, regardless of gender, um, are opposed to this uh, law. Um, and of course, there are also women who are supporting it. But that amongst that minority of Iranians who support it, there are you know some of the most ardent ones are women. That's just how that's how it always is, right? Um, so it's really a fight about. It's not about male versus female so much as about sort of freedom, um, you know, versus imposition and versus patriarchy here. Um, and uh, you know. Uh, if you if you look at you know the the law re because the forcing of the veiling is part of a, a broader forcing that uh, really is of course against Iranian men too you know you could be arrested in Iran um, just if you're a man and a woman who are walking together somewhere or in a car if you're sitting in a car together you could be arrested it has happened to me it has happened to tons of people all the time I mean the craziest thing you're going on a normal uh, sort of car ride and a random bunch of uh, cops can stop you and say you know it's a very famous word every Iranian knows this phrase what is your relation um, you know they ask you in a car and then of course you know tons of people don't get arrested but it's always a chance yeah, fascinating, fascinating. Um, and um, Arash, um, you, you, you've got many chapters in the book here covering quite a lot, actually, um, of different areas. So obviously the, the, the compulsory hijab wearing, which talks, first of all, about the law, um, what's going on and the struggles that are going on now. There's some pretty brave acts actually going on, women burning their hijabs, um, also dancing, which is banned in, in the streets, showing the finger, I think, to the Ayatollah, um, some pretty brave um, things going on there. But there's also the sort of women's rights more generally. Um, you talk about the labour movement, which is not something I think people in the West ever think of um, when they think of Iran. Um, freedom of expression, I think, is a big thing. I mean, just on that, um, Arash, would you be able to publish this book in Iran if you still lived there? Yeah, well, naturally not. Um, and, uh, you know, the freedom of expression is something that has been a subject of a struggle for Iran. We didn't have it before the revolution either, in, in before 1979. So you can say Iranians for more than a century have, have fought for the freedom of expression. Um, but that chapter about freedom of expression in the book is about, you know, sort of writers, uh, filmmakers, and, and a lot of others who have... You know, time and time again, what, what's really fascinating and what really this is what motivates me to write a book like this is the resilience of Iranians, that they don't give up, um, that they, you know, they could have just decided to uh, remain within certain limits and, and be tolerated. But no, they keep pushing buttons um, and they keep, um, as I said, I grew up in a sort of contradictory Iran where 
uh, yes, censorship was terrible, and there was you know a lot of a um, lot of censorship, but also it was a it was a super culture and place of sort of celebration of arts in a way that I've rarely seen anywhere else. As I said, and that's because Iranians who loved arts, who were um, into these writers, um, really uh, you know didn't give up and kept. Uh, pushing about buttons, you know, things that are banned in Iran, by the way, it's not just freedom expression. Women are banned from singing, right? So if you're if you're uh, something as simple as a, as a woman, even if you're, uh, you know, famously they said, even if you're singing a Quranic song as a woman, you you cannot sing. Um, so th- th- these tremendous barriers um, were really confronted by um, by Iranians who uh, keep trying to uh, push them away. Yeah, and there is a contrast, isn't there? That 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 event in 1979 when the religious regime took over. Before then, I do remember um, seeing documentaries and things. Actually, there was a lot of tourism from the West um, in Iran because, you know, you've got lots of historical sites there. And as you say, the culture is very, very rich there. So we have seen this huge change. Um, we're going to take a, br- a quick break now, um, Arash. But after that break, I'd like to hear from you. Um, where you think all of this this recent um, uprising is going? Do you think in your lifetime that Iranians will actually get the freedoms that they had back in the early 1970s? Or do you think actually this is going to um, prolong for, for many, many years? So we'll talk all about that after this short break right here on TNT. Give me a minute with TNT Radio's Steve Malsberg. you got to love the left-wing activists posing as journalists all over the media who go after Trump and 99% of them you figure really mean it and then there's Joy Reid who exposed herself on a hot MSNBC microphone Congressional Republicans love to latch on to President Biden and Democrats' successful policies and take credit for things they didn't do, while tying themselves into pretzels to do nothing for the American people for the sake of Donald Trump. Case in point Fixing what they say is a crisis at the border. With congressional negotiators continuing work on a bipartisan deal to tie border policy changes to funding for Ukraine. Over the weekend, President Biden said he's ready to take action if Congress is serious about solving the border issue. If that bill were the law today, I'd shut down the border right now and fix it quickly. And Congress needs to get it done. Starting another fucking war. (laughs) First and foremost, rule number one in broadcasting Always assume a mic is hot. She was a fool to assume that the mic was off. Number two, I guess she really doesn't like Joe Biden that much. If she said he's going to start another effing war, huh, I guess even leftist Joe Biden isn't leftist enough for radical Joy Reid. Thanks to the hot mic, we know that. And don't forget, catch my show Monday through Friday, 9 p.m. Eastern, right here on TNT. On a virtual road, you can test the limits of your driving ability to see 9 p.m. Eastern, right here on TNT. On a virtual road, you can test the limits of your driving ability to see how fast you can go under the most extreme conditions, like when it's dark, when the weather's bad, or when the unexpected happens. The higher the speed, the harder the impact. But driving isn't a game or a race. When you're on the road, Just 10 miles per hour over the limit can mean the difference between life and death. You're responsible for people's lives and your own. Slow down and save lives. The Freeman Report and James Freeman on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. 
Right. So, Rash, before the break there, we were just talking about the fact that Iranians, they just want to live a normal life. And this is actually one of the sections in your book. So tell us about the section, A Fight for a Normal Life. Yeah, I'm glad you bring it up. It's one of my sort of favorite chapters in the book, I think, perhaps the favorite. You know, I wrote, you know, all the chapters of the book are about different struggles that are happening. Before that, we're talking about sort of arts and culture. And, you know, it's true that Iranians take such pride in their culture that, you know, there's sort of there's sort of what I call a cultural resistance against this puritanical regime that really has nothing to do with that. Um, but the last chapter, I call it the fight for normal life and in you know, Sarina's revolution, is about a young woman uh, called Sarina Esmarizadeh, who was amongst those who were killed in the early days of the protests. And she was only 16. Um, and, you know, the thing about t- hundreds of people, many of them young people have been killed in these protests. And the thing about that is that most of the time, you know, the media tries to get an image of them, but they, you usually end up with a paragraph. Well, who was this person? You know, why did they come to get killed? And that's true in history of revolutions when you think there are usually hundreds of people who are unfortunately killed, and we don't know about them. Now, with Sarina, we had a um, we had a chance to have a window onto her life because, like many Gen Z Iranians, she was a super sort of avid social media user. She had. Uh, profiles on YouTube and Telegram and and other places, you know, where she was kind of a vlogger, as I think they call it, vlogger, sort of she made little videos. um, And she had on Telegram, she had a channel to share pictures, they had a channel to uh, share quotes, uh, music, um, you know, her own writings. So we had this a tremendous online archive to have a look into the life of this young woman and how it was. And that's sort of what I did for this chapter, which was the hardest for me to write um, because number one, I could really identify with her, uh, not just with my own uh, teenagers, but she reminded me of my young cousins, you know, in, in Tehran. Um, and, and what do they really want? And, you know, perhaps the core of this chapter is I go to this long monologue that she re- records in one of her sort of vlogs where she talks about sort of a, you know, as an Iranian teenager. Um, they want uh, what they, what, what has become encapsulated in this slogan that is really striking when you think about it is the fight for a normal life. Now, what is a normal life, right? Um, normal life is everything that this regime um, has denied Iranians, not just because of its restrictions and this sort of the social restrictions that are unparalleled in the world. I don't know how many other countries in the world can you go into jail because of not covering your hair, because in which women cannot sing, in which women are not allowed to bike, um, you know, and tons of other sort of random um uh, you know, random restrictions, but also because of economic destruction, because this regime has really overseen the economic destruction. Now, this is caused largely by um, uh, sanctions imposed by the West, um, but the sanctions are because of the policies that, that the regime pursues also, that it, it's sort of the enmity that it has uh, to the world and to the region. So Sarina, um, for me, was a window into the lives of, um, you know, day-to-day people of Iran today, who all they want, um, and I think this this unfortunately doesn't get, uh, you know, when we talk about Iran, you're talking about missiles and nuclear program and mm, foreign yeah. policy and all that. What is often lost is that, you know, the, Iran is a country like yours, like anywhere else, where, where young people just uh, want to have a, um, you know, want to have a normal uh, existence, want to have a good job, want to have uh, go back to their families. People really wake up every day wanting to have this. And unfortunately, the conditions... Um, doesn't allow them. And Serena, it's a path 
um, on which Serena died, for which she gave her life. So yeah, that's why I wrote that chapter. And that's really interesting what you were talking about there, Arash. What what do you think um, normal Iranians think of the West? Do they see the West as a, an enemy um, like their regime does? What, what do they make of all of the, the this talk from America about the axis of evil? And, and of course, at the moment, we're seeing high, heightened tensions in the Middle East. What do ordinary Iranians think of all of that? Ordinary Iranians um, are people who are very proud of their country, but they certainly are not anti-West and they're not anti-Israeli either, by the way. I mean, they're not, they don't have any particular enmity against anybody in the region. From our perspective, of course, um, a lot of us, myself included, we were very heartbroken by, by the wars in the region, by the suffering of the Palestinian people in, in Gaza, including. Um, but we don't want, you know, we don't want wars with, with Arab countries. We don't want wars with, with, with Israel. We don't want wars with the United States. Majority, vast majority of Iranians um, don't want that. And, and generally speaking, for a very long time, they've had good sort of cultural relations with the Western countries. As you know, there are millions of Iranians studying in Western universities. Um, there is not a single engineering department in the United States where you don't find some Iranians. Um, partially as a result, sort of it's like a brain drain for Iran, actually. But they're very sort of, and it, this, you know, in this chapter about Serena, um, I mean, this is something that is very well known to other Iranians, but I write it for others, obviously, um, who are not from Iran. You know, if you look at her references, you know, she talks about Kerbu enthusiasm, you know, she talks about um, Breaking Bad, you know, so there's the Western sort of pop culture references, although she also sort of really references um, Iranian um, uh, pop culture and, and all that, right? So, um, so this is not sort of a Westernized, and people say Westernized, I mean, they're not Westerners, so long as they're sort of proud Iranians who um, who look on the world and, and, you know, they like everybody else, they like American uh, sitcoms, sometimes British sitcoms too. Um, so, um, you know, um, yeah, the real story here is, and, you know, James, I really do think this is the future of Iran. Um, you know, I do believe that this current uh, conditions will change in one way or the other. Um, and, you know, the but what you will have is that Iranians, as a people, right, are uh, are a people who really are not interested in anything but peace with the world. I mean, as a whole, yeah. right? Um, there, it's, it is, and in in our history, that has sort of mostly been the case. Again, before nineteen seventy nine, we are kind of unique in getting along with everyone, if you will. Iran had great relationship. Yes, it was on the side of the U.S. in the Cold War. Uh, but it also had great relationships with um, Soviet Union and with uh, sort of Eastern European countries and with China. And it had good relations with everyone. And so that's uh, that's certainly um, what I aspire to and what I think a lot of Iranians would want their country to be neutral in world affairs and to um, have good relations with everyone. Yeah, no, a lot is changing at the moment in the world, um, across the world. But of course, Iran has just joined the BRICS nations, so with Russia and China. Um, I think that, you know, the years where Iran was really punished with sanctions, um, it seems that I think development is starting to pick up again. Do you think that this um, is a good thing for freedoms of the country, or do you think that this will just strengthen the regime and um, allow it to keep things as they are? What What do you see happening in um, in Iran over the next sort of ten twenty years? Um, so you, uh, you mean the joining of the BRICS, particularly, or um, yes, yeah, um, yeah. Look, um, 
I don't think Iran joining a BRICS is a bad thing, frankly, on on the on the face of it. Um, now, um, the reality is the the regime has destroyed Iran's traditionally, as I said, um, good relations with the world, right? So not only it has terrible relations with the West, not only it has ruined relationships with the region, you know, not just Iran, obviously, the, the regime keeps advocating destruction of Israel, but also this has ruined its relationship with Arab countries, right? We haven't had good relationship with our neighboring Arab countries, mostly. But it doesn't really have beneficial relationship with Russia and China either. Iran is supporting Russia's war in Ukraine by giving uh, arms to Russia. Why? It doesn't make sense at all for Iran um, to get 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 itself involved. And there are even leading diplomats of the Islamic Republic that are quoted in the book that are as as vehemently against this as as myself. They're not interested in Iran helping Russia militarily in this war. Um, and it also doesn't have equal relations with China. So you know, China. Um, uh, is interested in money and business, right? So uh, it's not particularly interested in Iran, doesn't care about uh, Iranians versus Arabs versus Israelis, right? So it comes to this region, has much better relationship with other Arab countries, has much more investments in, in Israel and in Arab countries than it has in Iran. So it's it really, so there's, there's nothing wrong with being in BRICS per se, right? Um, India, South Africa, all these countries are pursuing their national interests. Look, we're moving into a world in which um, countries are pursuing sort of their national interests, and that that doesn't need to be a bad thing, right? But unfortunately, mm. Iran is just entering this this race, if you will, with a very bad hand um, because of all the sanctions, because of the policies that has meant it hasn't prioritized its economic development, um, and um, that's something that we needs to change. And um, you, I think you asked me what I think will happen in the next twenty five years. Well, I was I was thinking, you know, all of this changes going on in the world, ge the geopolitics of the world, but um, and of course we've got these uprisings. I guess what I'm trying to to figure out is, are we? Do you think in your lifetime you're going to see the change in Iran that you want, and many millions in Iran want? This, this, this is a great question, and of course, one that I think about, you know, a few times a week. Um, it's a very personal question of when I will be able to. Go back, you know, like many Iranians, I've had to watch my grandfather die uh, from afar, not being able to be there. Uh, and, uh, you know, on a personal level, uh, I really love to get back. And I think about Iran's freedom um, really every day. Um, but so here's here's my optimistic take. Right. Um, and this is the optimism of, of, of will. Uh, you know, I you know, I have no illusions about sort of um, you know, I'm, I'm not someone who just says something to feel good, right? But the fact of the matter is what I told you about fundamental aspirations of Iranians will have to make itself sort of heard at some point. Um, I think, um, you know, Ayatollah Khamenei, the guy who is ruling over Iran, is 84 now, turning to 85. Um, he won't live there forever. Of course, it's very possible he might pass the leadership uh, to, to one of his acolytes, to his son, um, the Islamic Republic won't continue. But I think even, um, so my answer is twofold. First of all, even in the current establishment, there are people who understand that the kind of policies that they've been following are just untenable, that they cannot go around mm. wanting to fight United States every step, that they cannot want to fight their own people at every step, right? That, that impose this a vast amount of restrictions that I said on people. So I think at some point there'll be a reckoning, there'll be some reform um, and they'll be able to sort of, um, you know, they'll be able to uh, 
uh, have some a more normal life uh, for the country. And before we, I have no illusion, this wouldn't lead to democratic um, change necessarily, but at least it would mean to easing down of some of these policies. And perhaps people like me would also be able to go back. Um, but secondly, I think Iranians, the Iranian movements for democracy are at least go back to the constitutional revolution of 1905, where we rose up, uh, fought for a parliament, um, had to fight Russian invaders who invaded the country, and they won't stop. And that's partially what the book is also about to, to, to show you that, look, these people in this civil society, lawyers, human rights activists, will continue their struggle um, until they can achieve democratization. And on that, sadly, we've run out of time, Arash, but listen, fascinating conversation. Um, I'd love to go to Iran myself, but of course, I think that's not really possible um, in the current context. But I really do wish um, all the Iranian people well, um, and I certainly hope that they will achieve the freedoms they want in, in, in your lifetime so that you can go back there as well. Arash, I'd love to get you back on at some point. I am going to be talking about Iran more and more over the coming weeks and weeks. Arash Azizi, ladies and gentlemen. Right, to the rest of you, don't go anywhere because we've got more fantastic shows for you right here on TNT.